Growing up, sports were definitely one of my greatest teachers. I did play college soccer and growing up was absolutely obsessed with the Olympics. I worked at a international women's university in Bangladesh for my first job out of college. And I did do some stuff with their sports program there. So the idea of working with women and specifically in the area of sports has been a part of my life for a while. Frankly, I've just never had the guts to, before this, make the leap and do something on my own. So when I kind of got to this turning point in in business school and I said, Hey, you know, life has been pretty brutal for the last two years. What actually makes you happy? You know, when I really needed to pick me up, I said, this is kind of my go-to. This is my bread and butter. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. We continue with our winter break theme. Last week, we talked about songwriting with Scarlett Keys and introduced you to her podcast, What's in a Song? A quick background on me before I introduce my guest today. I volunteer as a mentor at the Harvard iLab, which is an entity within Harvard University that has a mission of fostering innovation among students across all of the Harvard schools. I work with student founders to help them advance their venture and then eventually decide whether they want to continue with it after they graduate. My guest today is a graduate of the program who made the decision to continue her venture upon graduation. Her name is Jamie Middleman, and she's the founder and host of a podcast called Flame Bearers which tells the stories of Olympian and Paralympian women athletes. The format is a little different. You will hear my interview with her on how she got to this point, but it's a shorter interview. And then she has been kind enough to let me republish one of my favorite episodes from her show. So you will hear the whole episode with Sarah Davis, a British weightlifter who also competes in beauty queen pageants and who was an amazing force in driving change in her sport by taking on the corruption in her federation. Enjoy. So let's start and have you introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit of what you're doing now and what's your story. Sure. Hey, everyone. I'm Jamie Middleman. I am the founder and host of Flame Bears, which is the first storytelling platform for women Olympians and Paralympians around the world. So we started about two years ago, which was crazy that it's been that long. And our mission is to elevate diverse women's voices. So every little girl and boy can have a role model who sounds and looks like them. How did you come into podcasting? It's so funny. So so Dino personally knows this story. This actually started as my COVID adaption. I was between years of graduate school. So I was at the Harvard Kennedy School getting my master's in public administration. And I had spent months networking my way to the International Olympic Committee in the hopes of pitching them um, and securing an internship around their gender equity campaign. So they spend millions of dollars trying to seek gender equity from who's playing, how they tell their stories, things like that. But in my opinion, they were not really doing a very good job of telling the stories of the women who were the best athletes in the world. So Long story short, when COVID happened and the Olympics and the Paralympics were postponed, and frankly, we didn't know if they were even going to happen, 
I said, screw it. I'm going to do this on my own. I applied for hun- for funding through Harvard and the rest is history. How did you end up at the Harvard Kennedy School? What was your experience before? Sure. So my background from a professional perspective was corporate social responsibility, specifically media management for a media technology company. So overseeing our CSR cause marketing work and nonprofit management. After that, I was kind of realizing that I was coming up against some limitations for my career, decided I needed to pursue my MBA because I wanted to develop some of my harder harder skill sets like my, my quantitative analysis, went to Dartmouth, so Tuck Business School to do so, and then followed up going to the Kennedy School to pursue a master's in public policy because I want to work in public-private partnerships. So the combination at the intersection of business and government. What's interesting to you specifically about that? What's the driver to work in that area? A couple things. I think the most exciting work project I ever did was with Michelle Obama's Let Girls Learn campaign. So I was working at the tech conglomerate, which has been renamed probably 20 times in the last six years. It was AOL, Yahoo, the Huffington Post, TechCrunch. And essentially, it was a tech challenge sponsored by my company in partnership with the Peace Corps and Michelle Obama's Let Girls Learn campaign. And what I loved about that was we were given uh, the resources of a for-profit, but we were also working with the government who knew how to scale our impact and the nonprofit, which really knew how to implement this on the ground. So that was kind of my first experience working in public-private partnerships. And I was blown away by what organizations could do together that had historically been very siloed. It must be a pretty interesting environment to have to put together three interests that are not always aligned and three worlds that sometimes move at different speeds and expectations. What were some of the things that you learned in that environment and maybe what some of the challenges that you had to face? Totally. Before that, I had been in the nonprofit space. And I think one of the reasons that I left was the pace of work and the inability to have a secure funding source. So working together with a for-profit and the government allowed us to have those fears of inconsistent funding kind of be allayed. So I think communication styles are very different. Expectations around timeline, response, things like that. That said, I think the power to scale things and the ability to reach people from different demographics is really massive when you work with different organizations from different backgrounds. I think that all too often people say, I want to go about it in the way that is, you know, they've historically done it. But if your mission is to really reach for people who perhaps have not been historically in your in your audience or your listener base, I think the best way to do that is to partner with organizations who have different home teams, if you will, because then you can reach very different people. What was a moment in the process of that that you felt really, okay, now I have made, even as small, but I've made a dent into what I'm trying to get at. And and what was that moment like? I'd say there's two moments. The first one was, I remember getting to work one day and I I think I was in the office at like 8am and I I got an email notification saying that our work was being featured in Seventeen Magazine. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. More people will find out about this. This actually matters. And it's not that I never felt that my work mattered. I I did it because it was important to me. 
But it was really cool to have that external validation. The second moment was when I actually got to go out to our Los Angeles office for the live pitch competition and meet the finalists. So these are women from all over the the country who were 14, 15, 16 years old. And they had been pushing themselves so hard to work on their pitches. And it was really inspiring to be able to, one, meet them, and two, understand how invested in the process they were. So that was really humbling and exciting for me. That's fabulous. And so when you went to graduate school and you said you started first with business and then with policy, was there a plan initially going in? Did you go in with sort of a vision of what you thought you were going to do? I did. So it's it's really funny. I thought I was going to do CSR and supply chain systems. So essentially making supply chain systems better for the environment, for the people along the supply chain, for the, the countries in which the goods were produced. What I click quickly found, though, was that I didn't want to work for a lot of the large companies that had really robust CSR supply chain system teams. And I think that was what opened my eyes in combination with noticing a lot of people who I did really respect going to policy school that made me start to think differently and say, hey, maybe this is something that I want to do too. And that was when I kind of stopped in my tracks and said, maybe I should actually go back to what went really well in my last job that is also step forward. And that's where I began to think of public-private partnerships as the direction that I really wanted to go in. So you went to graduate school thinking that you were interested in working in CSR supply chain system, which is actually a very specific subject. And then there's this shift of going into policy. And obviously, the the podcast right now is very mission-based. I'm interested in how was the shift towards focusing more and more like personally to have a mission and, and identify what that mission was? If I'm being completely honest, I think the shift actually came from my personal life. Dino knows a lot about this, but right the summer right before I started business school, I, I lost my dad to brain cancer. And then the summer between my first and my second year of business school, I almost lost my mom. And I think those two events in combination really made me stop and think about what I cared about, who I wanted to be, um, what frankly mattered to me and what didn't matter to me. And at the end of the day, I realized that I'm very much a people person. I get excited about stories and not supply chains. Um, I'm way more the type of person who wants to sit down and, you know, learn who someone is and what makes them tick. And frankly, that excited me more and sounded like a lot more fun than, you know, understanding operations and strategy for a for-profit company that I feel disconnected to. How did you come into this idea of targeting the Olympic Committee? What was the spark there? And, and was there a process as you were selecting, okay, if I'm going to be more cause-focused, these are the ca- causes that I'm interested in. How much of that is chance and how much of that is, you know, intention, things you've been exposed to? I think it's a combination of both. Growing up, sports were definitely one of my greatest teachers. Some of my happiest moments, some of my most frustrating and cringeworthy moments that I hope never see the light of the day were playing sports. I did play college soccer and 
growing up was absolutely obsessed with the Olympics. I worked at a international women's university in Bangladesh for my first job out of college. And I did do some stuff with their sports program there. So the idea of working with women and specifically in the area of sports has been a part of my life for a while. Um, frankly, I've just never had the guts to, before this, make the leap and do something on my own. I've always worked within an established organization or a company following the mission um, and the job description of what the person who hired me told me to do. So when I kind of got to this turning point in, in business school at Dartmouth and I said, hey, you know, life has been pretty brutal for the last two years. What actually makes you happy? And this is, you know, when I really needed to pick me up, I said, this is my, kind of my go-to. This is my bread and butter. So maybe it was actually a little selfish of me if I'm going to be totally real. Oh, that's great. You mentioned you started out with the idea of the Olympic Committee. How did the podcast as an option come up? How did the idea come? I have to give credit to my classmate at Harvard, Zoya Soroy, who was actually working on a podcast that she had created at the time. It was a podcast on news bringing in Harvard experts to comment on, on what was going on from a political perspective. I think that in combination with the fact that COVID happened and in-person events and my background in digital all kind of pushed me to think about how can I market and create content that is accessible to anyone in the world with a Wi-Fi connection when people are locked alone in their room. So the idea of creating a podcast, you know, was super accessible. It was also very easy. A lot of the athletes were, you know, locked at home in their little apartments, not knowing what was going to happen. They had extra time. If they were competing and on a normal schedule, they frankly probably wouldn't have talked to me. So I think I got really fortuitous in the sense that at the beginning of this, when I was just figuring out how to podcast, that timing played to my favor in the sense that a lot of these really big name athletes like a Becky Sauer run, for example, are at home and were able to talk to me. I love the podcast, which is why I asked you to be here today. There's a couple of very unique things about your podcast. So tell me about how you came up with the idea, the format, and the goal? Sure. So essentially what we do is we elevate women Olympians and Paralympians from around the world. And our goal is to have them uh, tell their stories as they want them told. So less than 4% of all sports media coverage goes to women athletes. And pretty much all of that goes to athletes who look like me. So they are white, able-bodied athletes from the global north who play certain sports. If you are black, if you are brown, if you practice a different religion, uh, if you play a less popular sport, if you are disabled, good luck getting any coverage, let alone something that doesn't kind of paint you with the pity brush. So nothing that's going to be fun for you to see or hear yourself if you're the featured person. So I really wanted to, to be a part, a part of changing that. Um, in terms of the format, so what we do is in, in every episode, we spotlight one athlete and then we bring on contributing experts. So these are either subject matter experts or personal experts, people who can shed light or contextualize part of what the athlete has talked about. So this could be a partner. This could be a coach. This could be a teammate or it could be a subject matter expert. 
in our recent episode that just launched today with Deja Young, she talked about postpartum depression. So we brought on two postpartum experts. She also talked about her fear of giving uh, birth as a Black woman. So we brought on a doula who specifically focuses on giving birth within the Black community. So it's this combination of putting the athlete front and center, bringing on experts who can validate and really go to bat for the experiences of the athlete, and then also contextualizing them and humanizing them through personal anecdotes through people who know the athletes best. What I love and what really resonated with me in in the time that we worked together is this idea that every episode has a very compelling storytelling thread, but it's really educational. Maybe we can give like an example of like the type of athlete and the topics connected to the athlete. So not just the name, but you know, if you if you can give us like three or four examples. So just today we launched an episode with Deja Young from the U.S. She's a three-time Paralympic track and field runner. And her episode was about, one, her fear of giving birth as a Black mother, and two, postpartum depression. Another example, earlier this season, we featured uh, Didi De Groot from the Netherlands, who is a wheelchair tennis player. She has won 31 majors, and her episode was all about her hopes and dreams for people with disabilities, and essentially her connection to a couple different nonprofits around sustainable fashion. Another example would be Becky Sauerbrunn, the captain of the U.S. women's national soccer team. So she is from the United States, and her episode was about pay equity. Ezene Halu Phelps is from Nigeria. She's a basketball player, and her episode was all about being a woman of color entrepreneur who started her own makeup line. There's a lot of fascinating stories. Another area that I really enjoy is the fact that you have actually built your season around major events. So the first one was the Tokyo Olympics. The second one was Peking. And now you're following the athletes as they are in between seasons and and Olympics. Exactly. So, So definitely also very lucky from a timeline perspective in the sense that this is the first time ever there have been two games back to back within a year because of the postponement of the games. So Season one was all athletes seeking to compete in Tokyo. Season two was all athletes seeking to compete in Beijing. And season three, the one we're in right now, is all about what happens between the games. So when the cameras and the fans go home, these athletes are still pushing themselves day in and day out, um, still seeking sponsors, still you know going about their workout routines every day, but no one really focuses on them. And that's a fascinating world because especially in the sports that you select, they are really not on our radar in off Olympics here. Not at all. That's <laughs> true. So what are some of the things that you learned? You've been at this for now over two years. And what has been the learning and, and the most exciting thing? It's interesting. I write down my learnings from every athlete. So every after every interview, I usually kind of feel like I've been gifted something. I come away saying, well, Becky taught me this, or SNA taught me this, or Deja taught me this. I think there's been a couple unifying themes. The first is, is that everyone has a story to tell, and everyone's story is, is worthy of being told and heard. The second is how tough it is to be a woman athlete right now that regardless of what sport you're playing, what country you're from, who you are, what what you look like, 
Every single athlete I have talked to is struggling and battling something. Even the athletes that you look at on TV and think they have it all together, when you sit down and you talk to them and they open up, they let you into their world, which frankly is not all glamour. Um, and it's really tough because the money historically has not been there for women athletes. So many of them are really juggling a lot of different things just to be able to show up to play their sport every day. Um, the third takeaway is, is more personal. It's largely that these are all real people. I know it sounds really silly, but I remember my first interview and I was so nervous. I was literally shaking sitting down with this person who, you know, is a, is a big Nike sponsored athlete. And I was like, Oh my gosh, she's talking to me. And, you know, I was very much in my head. And I think what you learn after you've talked to so many of these athletes who are very high profile, but also athletes people have never heard about is they're all just humans. We're all, they all have their, their fears and their insecurities and. Yes, they may be on primetime television and yes, they may have multi-million sponsorship deals, but they're still just people. So that was a really cool takeaway for me personally. I know that there's like a number of athletes that you really wanted to have. Yes. What are a couple of the ones that you got really excited when you had them on? I would say Sue Bird was a huge one for me. So Sue is a, a U.S. basketball legend. Uh, she has largely been the face of the WNBA for two decades. She's also on the front line of a lot of social activism. So I, I was really excited and honored to speak with her. I was also very excited to speak with Didi De Groot from the Netherlands. I think she is a lot less well-known. However, given her track record, I, I know in five to 10 years, she's going to be as big as Serena. It's just that right now, people don't watch wheelchair tennis with the enthusiasm as they do what people call normal tennis, able-bodied tennis. But she is one of the most outstanding athletes and her commitment to the disabled community is really inspiring. Oh, I have another one. Caster Semenya. I was so excited to speak with Caster. So Caster's from South Africa. She was actually barred from competing in Tokyo because of her naturally high testosterone levels. So Caster was the reigning world champion in her events going into Tokyo. And she was not able to compete because of her testosterone levels that she was born with. Again, she has had no biological changes. We're not talking about that. These are Caster's normal testosterone levels. And it was ruled that they were, quote unquote, higher than average. So she wasn't able to compete. I was really excited to speak with Castor because I felt like there had been a large injustice. And it was a really special time to be able to go to bat for her. Because I know she was hurting and at home and not where she thought she should be. And it was really, I think, validating for her to hear experts come to her defense when a lot of the world was criticizing her. Hopefully people by now are pretty excited to listen to the podcast. And so since these episodes have already gone a little bit off my traditional approach, and one of the things that I do in the winter break is to try to expose my listeners to podcasts that I love, you have been incredibly graceful and have accepted to give me an episode of yours to attach here. Just give me like the 30 second round out of who we're going to listen from. It's an episode that I love. Sure. This is an episode with Sarah Davies, who is 
in charge of the Athletes Commission for weightlifting. She is also a beauty pageant queen. So she holds identities that many people think incorrectly don't go together. So again, she's one of the top weightlifting athletes in the world. And she's also a beauty pageant queen. Her episode is all about uh, corruption within the world of weightlifting and her battle to basically take down that corruption. Yeah. So basically, Sarah Davis is, is an amazing badass. Exactly. <laughs> who is also a pageant beauty queen, you know, weightlifter. She literally took on the World Federation in her sport, which it's something that very, very few athletes have the courage to do. Doesn't happen. <laughs> Jamie, thank you so much for being a part of this. Keep doing the work, everybody. The podcast is called Flame Bears. Season three is called Keeping the Fire Burning because, as we said, it's all about athletes in between Olympics. And I don't, I know that one of my favorite athletes is a guest. I don't know if the episode has been released or not, but not yet. she's Italian and she skis. <laughs> Let's guess. <laughs> Jamie, thanks so much for doing this and good luck with your podcast. Thank you for everything, Dino. I really appreciate it. Before we go to Jamie's episode, I'm going to say goodbye. Thank you for listening. And as usual, I remind you to tell all your friends about the show and post about it on social media. Also, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. If you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating or a review. I will have all the links that you need to find Jamie on the episode page of the podcast website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Look for the handle at al4edp with the letter D before the P. On Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm, and the theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino and a little help from Grammy-nominated bass player Jesse Williams. And now, on to Sarah Davis on Flame Bearers. Enjoy! point I was like I'm done I can't keep quiet anymore so I made this video and just posted it on Instagram and then from there it's kind of escalated that the executive board realized that we're at risk of getting kicked out of the Olympics. Welcome to Flame Bears, the women athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. I'm your host Jamie. In this episode British weightlifter Sarah Davies shares how her unique combination of beauty and brawn shatter both stereotypes and records. Sarah's journey is about defying convention, whether it's in beauty pageantry or weightlifting. Across the world of sport and pageantry, Sarah is breaking unspoken rules of convention. An autocratic leader in charge of a dysfunctional organization. Just some of the ways Tamash Ayan was described in an investigation that exposed decades of corruption inside the World Weightlifting Federation, the IWF. We talk about what it's like being a female Olympic weightlifter and beauty pageant queen while taking on corrupt leadership inside the International Weightlifting Federation, the governing body for international weightlifting. 
We start with how she got into weightlifting, explore how her love for weightlifting and pageantry connect, and lastly dive into her efforts to clean up the IWF as chair of the Athletes Commission. I'm Sarah Davis and I'm a weightlifter for Great Britain. My biggest achievements were I won the silver medal at the Commonwealth Games in 2018. I recently just won three silver medals at the European Championships um, and became our best ever female weightlifter on like a pound for pound basis. And um, I was actually the first ever British person, male or female, to win the European Under 23 Championships back in 2015. All that, and she's only 28 years old. While 5'4 is about an average height for a woman, lifting the amount she does is anything but average. When competing, Sarah lifts around 100 to 125 kilograms or 220 to 275 pounds, depending on the event, snatch or clean and jerk. I wanted to find out what got her pumping iron in the first place. So the thing with weightlifting is like, for me, it's kind of really easy to measure progress. You're either lifting more weight or you're not. I don't train to look good, which obviously a lot of people do. Like they beat mm -hmm. themselves up in the gym. They hate going to the gym and because they, you know, they want to look better or whatever it is. But like, I enjoy what I do. It just happens that that then makes my body look good as a product of it. So yeah, it's definitely that, you know, ability to push myself and see what my body can achieve. Like you either lift the weight or you don't. While weightlifting may seem like an individual sport, According to Sarah, team dynamics are really important. I wondered how they come into play given the hyper-competitive nature of actually getting to Tokyo. In the 10 years that I've been lifting, that team dynamic has changed a lot. And like, we obviously share rooms when we go on training camps and we go away and to competitions and stuff. And, you know, we've got a lot of memories together. Good ones, bad ones, funny ones, sad ones. Like, it's, um, it's a 10-year friendship. It's nice now, though, to all be like a united team, whereas previously mm -hmm. it was a little bit unstable. Three of us used to compete in the same weight class. So it was a very different dynamic six, seven years ago when we were all competing for the same spots on the national team to what it is now. So now we're all spread out across classes and, and we've grown up as well. Like, you know, we've all moved together and now to have, you know, four of us pushing for, for the Tokyo spot is, is pretty special. Women supporting women is becoming increasingly common, especially in spaces that are heavily male. And I'd say it's about time. But given that lifting has been so historically male dominated, I was curious about the stereotypes she faces as a woman weightlifter. So when I started lifting, like I got a lot of, you shouldn't lift weights, it makes you manly. All of that kind of what you'd expect. and. I think generally it's got better because I think, I don't know if it's just the circles that I move in, but there's been that shift as well with social media and the kind of idolized women's figure and what, what mm -hmm. is sexy these days has changed. And I think it is more of a, a muscular figure and, you know, it's not being sticks thin and all the rest of it. And, and having a Kim Kardashian bum, which if you squat the weights that I squat, you get the bum for the price of a gym membership rather than the price of a good surgeon. But, you know, each to their own, right? <laughs> I don't know what people expect, but um, I think they expect me to be like six foot two and shoulders like as wide as I am tall and all the rest of it. Um, but I mean, you think our smallest weight class is like 45 kilos, the smallest girls, girls class. So that's what like 
90 pounds, if that. So yeah, weightlifters come in all sizes and that's the definitely the biggest stereotype is, you know, you don't look like a weightlifter. And then people definitely don't expect me to do pageants. It's not every day you meet someone who wears medals and sparkly crowns, but Sarah defies convention in both the weightlifting and pageantry worlds. Fun fact, Sarah actually put weightlifting down as a special talent when she entered her first beauty pageant, which she won. Ever since, the former Miss Intercontinental England has been combating another stereotype, what a pageant girl looks like. I competed in pageants originally to try and convince myself that I can be strong and beautiful and that, you know, because I'm still doing pageants, I'm still beautiful, even though I do weightlifting. And I kind of, you know, like it was kind of trick myself. And then now I'm, I didn't actually win a national title until I was like, I am strong and I am beautiful and I am who I am. And that's when I went out there and just went out there and did me. And that's when I won my national title. People have the stereotype of what a pageant girl is as well. Like they expect this tall, skinny, blonde girl, like, which is definitely not the case anymore. I mean, some of your, the big Miss USA and uh, Miss United States winners recently have been like the opposite. People think pageants are just purely viewed on how you look, but I'd say like 70% of most pageants is like your interview, it's your charity work, it's your community work. They watch how you handle yourself around other people, like even within the hotel, like how you speak to hotel staff. It's about being a role model. It's about, you know, putting yourself out there to make a difference in your community, to be a role model for young girls. And do you know what? You can be muscular and you can be strong and you can still be feminine. Sarah's best friend, Stephanie, encourages her in both weightlifting and pageantry and shares that one of the keys to Sarah's success is her confidence. She just rocks it, you know, she's super confident. She gets all her, you know, her views and opinions out there as well as looking wicked on stage. And what's more sort of inspiring than somebody that's a businesswoman, you know, she's physically in amazing shape. She does look different to the other pageant girls. And I think that's what's great about it, that she's got the confidence to do that. You know, a lot of them are very tall, sort of a slim shape and quite different to Sarah. And then she rocks up with this like, you know, Olympic athlete body. And you're like, who is that girl? And then actually she's got a voice as well. And it's amazing. And I think the UK pageant girls are very supportive of each other. It's not like this competitive environment. They're all very much building each other up. Someone else who's also been really supportive of Sarah is her former pageant director, Holly Peary the director of Pageant Girl. What I try to aim to do with our organisation is to say that we're all different and, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, but we should be proud of our differences and we should be proud of what makes us who we are. Um, and so people could say, well, that's a contradiction in terms because what you're essentially doing is judging women and having them stood next to each other and saying, well, this is the best for that reason. It, rather, it's the opposite in saying, this girl is different for this reason, but, but be proud of it. Own your achievements uh, and celebrate them. You could be a size six or a size 14. It's, it's how they have that confidence, how, how they portray themselves. You know, you look at Sarah and she's a, such a fantastic role model to all girls and women and, and anyone who has a dream. Sarah isn't just changing the image of who can be a pageant queen or elite weightlifter. She's also seriously shaken things up in the International Weightlifting Federation, or IWF. To provide a 30,000-foot overview, the IWF has had decades of massive corruption and doping. 
And these issues have been going on for so long that they've become ingrained in the sport to a level where the leadership no longer feels accountable to change unless they're under pressure. And this has historically come from the International Olympic Committee, or IOC. To pressure the IWF to clean up their act, the IOC has been threatening to remove weightlifting from the Olympic program since 1988. So this isn't new. The IWF also resents and resists the IOC pressures and hopes to keep the ball in the air until after Tokyo and then try to finesse something with the next games in Paris. What's new is how Sarah is pushing back and fighting to make change from within the International Weightlifting Federation. She's the chair of the Athletes Commission. I'm chair of the Athletes Commission now for the IWF, so International Weightlifting Federation, which is why I've now got a vote on the executive board after a lot of fight and a lot of calling people out. Like I, I was pretty outspoken to a lot of people. Once again, Sarah's defying convention this time by not letting issues she spots in the IWF slide. One such issue she's called out is around gender. Now, while at the elite levels, there's a 50-50 participation rate amongst men and women athletes, the sport has a long way to go in terms of leadership. Sarah is just one of two women that sit on the executive board that has been made up entirely of men for over 40 years. Weightlifting is quite new in terms of Olympics. So our first women's weightlifting was in 2000 in Sydney. So that's only like five Olympic cycles ago. I mean, it's one of the oldest Olympic sports when you look at the men's side of it. But for the women, it's one of the the newer sports. So, and that like filters all the way up as well. So we're now at a point that we've got a more equal participation rate. So when you look at our executive board, there's 22 members of the executive board and only two of them are female myself being one of them, and I've only just got a vote. So yeah, we don't even hit 10% of our executive board being female in a sport that is 50-50. So yeah, it's definitely something that we need to change. And um, the thing that's ironic is we used to have a women's commission. That was the only commission that had a rule on gender. And the rule of the commission was that it had to have one man on the women's commission. I had to ask her to say that again before it sunk in. The only rule relating to gender at the IWF is that one man must sit on the women's committee. I asked Sarah how the executive board has treated her. They'd like stand up out of their chair and like tower over their camera to try and have this like big egotistical male chauvinist like attitude over me and like that's what my issue is is the attitude towards having women on the board not necessarily the fact that we've not got enough gender equality Mm -hmm. it's the fact that the women that are there aren't listened to and aren't respected it turns out that corruption and gender inequality are just the beginning and doesn't just affect weightlifting in the uk We've had a lot of problems recently um, with anti-doping scandals and corruption within the sport Someone who's working alongside Sarah to clean up the sport of weightlifting is Phil Andrews, CEO of Weightlifting USA. I asked him to catch us up to speed on the situation. As Sarah mentioned, it turns out that doping is also a huge issue within the sport. And the IWF leadership has just been looking the other way for decades. On January the 5th of 2020, ARD, which is the BBC or PBS public uh, broadcast station of Germany, published a documentary which in English is called The Lord of the Lifters. 
that exposed a number of allegations at that time within uh, the sport of weightlifting. So following that, the Oversight and Integrity Commission of the IWF was formed, which was the commission essentially authorized to look into the issues raised by ARD. That commission appointed Richard McLaren. Richard's best known for his work on the Russian doping scandal. Today, the World Anti-Doping Agency suspended Russia's sports drug testing lab. 99% of Russian athletes are guilty of doping. Richard reported back on June 4th. That report found 10.4 million missing dollars, over 40 manipulated or otherwise missing doping samples evidence of corruption in voting practices and evidence of essentially financial fraud within the IWF. Since then, there's been further issues in the way the IWF has been run by its current executive board. What the McLaren report really did was highlight we need good governance around our finances, around developing the sport in areas where it hasn't been developed, We need a better constitution, better bylaws, better controls. We need to bring in really good structured ways of ensuring that our sport is led by predominantly clean nations. And critically, we help nations who have relied on doping in the past to become clean. Nobody wants a nation out of the sport. Nobody wants banned nations. Nobody, Egypt are currently serving a suspension. Thailand are currently serving a suspension. We want those nations to be there and compete against us. We want them to do it clean. And that's all we ask. With so many nations under the needle, I needed more scoop on this international scandal. So I sat down with someone who's been one of the most outspoken advocates against doping to find out how we got here. I'm Dick Pound. In in real life, I'm a uh, a lawyer in Montreal, Canada. I'm now the senior active member of the International Olympic Committee. Mr. Pound was also an Olympian himself and the first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA. WADA was founded with the aim of bringing consistency to anti-doping policies and regulations within sports organizations and governments across the world. Do you realize that that something like 50 or 60% of our positive drug cases come from the sport? There were no rules in sport that made these performance-enhancing drugs a a breach of the sport rules. There weren't any sport laws. And a subcommission was charged with figuring out what athletes were using and then putting together a list of these things. And then, you know, sort of making them prohibited mainly because of the danger to health. You know, what was happening is, is, you know, if you were taking 10 milligrams and I found out you were taking 10 milligrams, I didn't take 10, I would take 20 because I wanted to beat you. I didn't want to be the same as you. All of a sudden you, you get into this ratcheting up to levels of ingestion that are, that are toxic and in some cases lethal. Steroids are in the DNA of weightlifting and it's going to take some time to get them out. And if you have corrupt officials, we're prepared to say, uh, you know, Jamie, you tested positive for something, but we can fix that. You know, instead of a fine, if you you, you make a cash payment to, to me, your beloved IF president, this will go away. 
So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's out of control. They can't seem to solve. They, they, either they can't or they don't want to, but we need to help them. So if we take them off the program for maybe two or three Olympic games to, you know, to help clean out the system, maybe we'll get there. The only thing that, that wakes these folks up is the fact that weightlifting may not be on the Olympic program. So how can one of the strongest weightlifters in the world take on gender inequality and fight corruption against a Goliath of an organization? By pressing record. Hey everyone, um, especially to my fellow weightlifting athletes. This video is not a video I ever hoped or I ever wished to record. I was hoping- So I made this video and just posted it on Instagram, maybe just cause I was annoyed. I was like, I need to get these words out. Before I knew it, my phone had blown up. Like it was all around the internet in weightlifting circles, even not in weightlifting circles. Like I had a bunch of people reach out to me from other sports that were like, we have the same problem. Like, well done to you for speaking out because like the problem had existed in weightlifting for such a long time, but people were too scared to say anything or didn't necessarily know the direction to take it. And, you know, I had the support from the IOC, so the Olympic International Olympic Committee. They got in touch with me and like, we support you, whatever you need. And then from there, it's kind of escalated that the executive board realized that we're at risk of getting kicked out of the Olympics. I put my face out there on social media and ended up being like the face of the whole movement, um, which sometimes I regret, um, but it's kind of cool to be a part of and to really be seeing that change now in our sport, which is awesome. Given that Mr. Pound has been in a leadership position with the Olympic movement for almost 40 years, I figured he'd seen a lot of change. I asked him how we could tell if Sarah has been gaining traction. I mean, one of, one of the things, I mean, when I was doing WADA, one of the things uh, that gives you an idea of whether you're doing a good job is, is the identity of the people who hate you. If, if the weightlifting inner circle doesn't like you, it, it means you've turned over a rock that they never wanted uh, turned over. And, and, uh, and But that's what you're going to have to do. The one thing that scares these folks is, is bright sunlight. Given that Sarah is turning over lots of rocks and shining a very bright light on this organization, I asked her how the board's treatment of her has changed. So they're now quite nice to me, but they're nice to my face, but they don't really like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're nice to me because they have to be nice to me, not particularly because they want to be nice want, to me. Yeah. yeah. Sarah is well aware that the people she's exposing aren't exactly people many like to get on the bad side of. Once again, she's doing what she thinks is right, even though she's going against the grain. I told her she's really brave. People keep telling me that, and I'm like, I just did it. Like, sometimes I've kind of, I think I'd like do, and then I don't think about the consequences. Because <laughs> then I went to Russia for the European Championships and was like, I might not come home. <laughs> Sarah clearly knows the risks of her actions, and in spite of them, she speaks against the current leadership. So how can this change and is there hope? I sat down with someone who's a global expert on sports governance. My name is Spencer Harris and I'm an associate professor of sport management, College of Business at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. I I think what we see, and this is rather dark and depressing, but what we see in the International Weightlifting Federation isn't really that surprising anymore. I mean, this this is becoming more a reflection of what we see in international sport bodies. And I think one of the reasons we see it is 
kind of this notion of les sportiva, which is, you know, autonomy, a principle, a guarded principle under the IOC's Olympic Charter, which gives sport and preserves sport's right to govern itself. And I think we can say this with confidence. Sport can no longer be trusted to govern itself. But that principle is still held on to dearly by those in the sport system for obvious reasons. There are lots of interests there why they would want to preserve the notion of autonomy. But when you have a system like sport that has very little external oversight, it has very little independence. So this is like a, a big old, old guy's network. And at the same time, you have this ridiculous conflict of interest where this family, this extended family, not only are responsible for regulating their sport and making sure that sport is safe and making sure that sport is clean, they're also responsible for promoting sport and therefore, you know, kind of leveraging the brands, polishing the brands and looking to, to secure as, as much revenue as they possibly can. You know, bad news, bad stories often will get swept under the rug in the interests of brand equity and protecting mm. the brand. It's about impression management. It's about perceptions. I think to really create disruption in sport, there has to be something that gets the fans and there has to be something that gets the sponsors and the broadcasters because they are the sites of disruption. They are where real change will happen because if those folk get unhappy and displeased, that will force change in the system. I think it will be really interesting to see what happens between athletes and the administrators over the next few years, but I don't think athletes have the power to bring change. The fans, the sponsors, and the broadcasters, they absolutely do. So what does this all mean for an athlete like Sarah, who's just trying to compete and lead the IWF with integrity? I think for an athlete like Sarah, many like her around the world, now is a time for the first time where it feels like there's a chance for them to have their voice heard, but also that anti-doping is being done by an independent third party and therefore at least feels like it's being done better. It feels like there's a chance for the athlete to be put at the center of what we do and backed by nations. There's about 16 nations who've put forward proposals for our upcoming constitutional congress, which align with athletes being at the heart of what we do. It gets really boring, by the way, when you watch an empty platform, an empty track in track and field, or an empty beam in, in gymnastics. The athletes are kind of what we do. They're kind of what we're here for. It gets really, really tiresome just watching empty equipment. There's a chance here, as Sarah put it this morning, Sydney, to make history. And she is being that real voice for athletes. We're in a realistic point of view where we might not be in Paris 2024. The athletes that I coach and the, my teammates that are up and coming, like that won't go to this Olympics, I'm like, you deserve an Olympic Games and it shouldn't be ruined by the dinosaurs that have run our sport for the last 40 years just because it's been run that way. Like, you know, speak up and then, you know, it might be scary, but you'll be surprised the amount of people that support you in your journey on the process. Be brave and stand up for what you believe in because if you're not going to do it, who is going to do it? And then we're all just going to stay stagnant and we're not going to see the world move forwards. As we near Tokyo, I asked Mr. Andrews about his hopes. So I'm hoping to see a podium we can be proud of in the Olympics. I'm me. In the last three Olympic Games, there's not been an Olympic Games where the podium that you see where the medals are put around the athlete's neck remains the podium. 
what I'm saying is we've had medalists who are dopers, whose medals have been reallocated for doping reasons. In other words, I want to believe what I'm seeing. Though the future of weightlifting at the Olympics after Tokyo is still uncertain, Sarah Davies remains a positive force for change, whether it's behind a sash, under the bar, or at the boardroom table. She offers us this bit of advice, regardless of what walk of life we come from. Do what you want to do, like, for yourself. Don't do it because you think somebody else wants to do it, or... or don't stop doing it because people want you to stop doing it. You know, there's times where, you know, people would have liked me to have stopped weightlifting or stopped pageants or whatever it was, or, you know, life circumstances. Like I question myself whether to, to keep doing weightlifting or not. So whatever you do, do it for you and do it with full conviction because you don't want to live with regrets. As Sarah raises the bar at the IWF, we can all check in with ourselves to make sure we're raising our own bars as well. Definitely won't be lifting the same amounts, but we each have our own loads. Thank you for tuning in to Flame Bears, the women athletes carrying Tokyo's torch. For more behind-the-scenes coverage, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Flame Bears. If you haven't seen it yet, check out Sarah's viral video on Instagram about the IWF. Our Flame Bearers social handles will be resharing her message across our platforms. This episode was made possible by Phil Andrews. Thank you. Professor Harris called out the power of fans to help put pressure on the IWF. Check out our social accounts across Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for specific calls to actions or recommendations for how you can help fuel the fire. If you missed last week's episode with Olympic rower Carlotta Nwajidi, she discusses the implications of race and what it means to be a black female rower in a predominantly white sport. She also talks about how rowing in the outdoors birthed the passion for environmentalism and how her German team is combating the climate crisis. Massive thank you to my teammate Hayek Serato for your awesome help. Thank you to new mentor Emma Minto, and as always, to my Harvard iLab guru and mentor Dino Catano. Lastly, thank you to the Harvard Kennedy School for your ongoing support. We'll catch you on our next episode.